Listener Production. I think, first of all, you've got to start with the customer in terms of the why. You know, what problem are you trying to solve for them? Who are they and what is the problem that you're trying to solve? And is it something that you care deeply enough about to crawl through barbed wire and you know, <laughs> break down walls yeah, for right. because it is going to be hard and it has to be if you're going to create competitive advantage. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Chief Investment Officer of The Motley Fool here in Australia and the host of The Motley Fool Money podcast. But more importantly, at least for this time, I'm also the host of our brand new podcast, The Good Oil. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the phrase, but giving someone the good oil is giving them the good stuff, the important stuff. And that's the aim of this podcast. We're going to bring you conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, and experts, the people who know what's going on and the people who make things happen. Today's guest is Kate Morris. Kate is the co-founder, director, and chief of innovation at adorebeauty.com.au, the makeup and skincare e-commerce juggernaut that is honestly taking Australia by storm. I've got to say, I love this description of Kate on the Adore website. Here's Here's what it says. Nerd, foodie, entrepreneur, shoe junkie, skincare and sunscreen obsessive, owns over 50 lipsticks, which are all the same color, in brackets, pinky nude beige, cannot say no to champagne or pastry. That's a that's a pretty good combination. Uh, firstly, Kate, welcome to The Good Oil. And I guess I should start with, um, I, I'm not even sure which one of those to go with. Let, let's start with nerd. Um, in what ways, Kate, are you a nerd? How am I a nerd? Well, look, in in many ways, historically, definitely a nerd. Um, all through all through high school, you can ask anyone who went to, <laughs> went to Launceston Grammar in the early nineties. Um, so you know the the theatre geek, the you know in the orchestra, the recorder ensemble, like all of the really daggy stuff that was me. Uh, and then, and then, really, just kind of took that to to the next level by um, uh, by also learning how to code when I uh, when I launched uh, the Adore website. So and fifty lipsticks is that just because you can't pass one up because you need to have one everywhere? How does that? I'm not a lipstick guy. You might be surprised. And okay. Well, look, you know, Scott, I would not judge you if you were, um, but uh, yeah, no, it's kind of an occupational hazard, actually, <laughs> just sort of having. <laughs> too much of everything yeah. and because of course it, you know it's part of my job right like I need to try it and so when there's something new it's like oh yeah well I'll just I'll just give that a go and maybe it's maybe it's not the exact same as every other one I already own but then yeah, inevitably it usually is but oh so right so it's all different brands you're not just you're not just stocking up on the one thing you're grabbing oh, the no, same no, no. colour in right no, okay, oh, okay. no they're all t- they're all very different Scott they're all very <laughs> very minute variations <laughs> on my my favourite colour <laughs> I won't. I won't ask you to, uh, to to say which one, which brand is your favourite. I don't imagine you'd probably do that regularly. Are you welcome to you're welcome to do that? Have you got, have you got a tip for uh, a female or a male listeners who, who are wearing lipstick? A, a tip for anyone? Oh, look, that's honestly, it's you, you, it's, you asked me to pick my favourite child. And I <laughs> would feel mean doing that. So fair yeah. enough. Let's not let's not do that. <laughs> All right, let's 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 move to the business, and we'll, we'll get back to your story in a minute. But um, uh, financial year twenty twenty one highlights. I got this straight off your press release. Uh, the, the business seems to be in ruddy good health. Now there's been COVID and we'll talk about that. But let me just read the bullet points that you guys provided to the market. Um, a revenue of $179 million, up 48% on the previous year and 57% growth annualised over the last three years. Active customers, 800,000 Australians. Yep. And that's up 40%. Returning customer growth up 64%. A gross profit margin of 33%, which is astonishing. And that's up on last year. 
record profitability, as you say, and $30 million worth of cash as at June 30 with no debt. Man, I mean, you know, as, as a relatively young, certainly young listed company, those are some phenomenal numbers. It, it does underscore your success thus far. I, I guess the question for the first question for our listeners is, what is Adore doing so well to earn those sorts of results? Well, I guess it's it's funny, Scott, to to kind of be considered as as a, a newbie because um, we've mm-hmm. been doing this for twenty one years <laughs> and still overnight success. Right, right? that's it. That's it. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so it's something that we've been working very hard on for a very long time, and and I think where um, where Adora's really managed to excel is just our from the very start continuing focus on the customer, um, and that was really how the whole idea of the business came about was that this experience, you know, this this traditional retail experience is not working for the customer. How can we do it better? How can we, you know, give a more empowering and a more enjoyable and a more fun experience uh, to (laughs) to our customers that they're not really getting out there at the moment? And so when you approach everything with the customer first, um, and you work really hard on that for a really long time, and you, you know, you bring amazing people into the business, then, you know, Amazing results is what you what you get out the other end. So yeah, we, we were very happy with um, with the, our our sort of first first official year of results. Yeah, yeah, that's the, the, the first year after twenty other first years or For yeah, sure. exactly yeah. Uh, two, two decade overnight success. Uh, you, you, you did you, you say on your, your website and your profile you, you started working at a, at a pharmacy when you were fifteen. You worked at a cosmetics counter through university. So either you found cosmetics or cosmetics found you. I'm not sure whether that was something you desperately wanted to do or that was the the only job at the local David Jones or Meyer or, or whatever it was back in the day. Um, I, I don't know if that feels like a lifetime ago to you or only yesterday, but I wonder if you can tell us how you go from uni student at the cosmetics counter to that realisation, as you said, that this simply isn't working. And then maybe from that, I guess, the, the next big step, the biggest step is how do you then go, and I'm the person to fix this. I know how it's done. I'm going to take the leap. I, I'm the I'm the nerdy kid in the recorder ensemble. Uh, I'm the uni student. But you know what? I'm going to go and co-found a phenomenally successful half a billion dollar cosmetics business um, you know, lots of people can have ideas at uni and at their local, you know, first job, second job. So, so how do you how do you have the idea first up, and then how do you, how do you take the leap to I'm going to build this thing and, and make it work? Yeah, 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 sure. Okay, so if you can sort of cast your mind back to 1999, when you like the internet is is really early, right? Like some people have email addresses, but not everybody does. Certainly, you know, we don't have smartphones in our pocket, and there's no Facebook, and there's there's not even any broadband at this point. Like it's fully dial-up. Um, and and so this was really, like, at uni was really my first experience of using the internet and and mm. um, I kind of always been Same a beauty... Actually. Yeah, yeah. I had always been a beauty junkie since, um, well, since my, since my job in the pharmacy when I was 15. Like, that was just always kind of my favourite bit of the store and I really grew to love it. And, and then, and then, yes, as a uni student and working part-time on the beauty counters... I guess I sort of started putting two and two together in the sense that whenever I told people what I did for my part-time job to pay the rent during uni, people would kind of pull this face and go, oh, my God, you're one of those, like, really scary <laughs> women that, like, jump on you and try oh, yeah, and upsell right, okay. you all this stuff and spray you with yep, perfume yep, yep. when you're walking past and, oh, you know, like, I, I hate that. It's the worst. And I find I go in there and I come out with all these things that I 
don't need or don't like and and I you know I really hate it and and to me that was just that was really a tragedy because the whole point of beauty from my perspective is this is actually a self-care category you know it should be something that makes you feel like the most confident and fabulous version of yourself and if the shopping experience is making you feel the opposite way, then that doesn't work. Um, and, and then here I am looking at, you know, all of these kind of beauty websites and there's nothing in Australia. And so I'm looking at what's happening in the US and, and then mentally kind of redesigning them all for, for, what I, for what I thought that the customers would actually want and why aren't they putting the ingredients on there and why aren't they explaining to people how any of this works? And, um, and I guess, yeah... <laughs> started boring all of my friends <laughs> with with these these ideas about uh, about this beauty website and in the end it was um my partner and and my co-founder James who turned around and said to me look you know are you going to stop talking about it and do this or what and that was literally like not one moment before then had I ever considered starting a business and I certainly would not have expected like if you showed me a door today back then I would have just passed out on the floor, I think. And so it's, you don't, you don't start a business out of your garage going, yes, this is going to be a half a billion dollar listed business. But, um, but in the end, yes, here we are. Yeah. That's, it's an amazing story too. It's, I guess the so let's go then to the between then and now. You talked about the the twenty one year story and and the the growth from the idea, the germ of the idea at the cosmetics counter. Hey, let's start the business as, as James says. And then you go and say, well, okay, I guess I can do this. Um, maybe you can fill in those twenty years for us. Sure. <laughs> I know it's a, it's a it's a very simple question to ask, and it could be either you know a, a two second story or a twenty five minute story. But I, you know the for a lot of people listening, they are entrepreneurs or business people, or they're thinking about starting their own businesses. And the journey in between, so getting the idea is obviously important. If you had the wrong idea, we're not talking today. But the hard work is those 20 years of behind the scenes. I mean, people know you and know your side, of course, but you know we're near as prominent as you are these days as, as the co-founder uh, of, of a now publicly listed ASX company. Um, I, it was 20 years a slog? Was it, was it a passion project? Did you love it? Were there lots of setbacks? Was it smooth sailing because you found the right idea and just had to keep pressing? Just, no. Maybe you just, not rather than tell the story, can you characterise that journey for yeah, us? Yeah, look, it's kind, of, it's kind of all of the above, to be honest, <laughs> except for the smooth sailing part. I don't think it was ever... For that and I, and I think that that um, you know in some ways it diminishes the entrepreneur journey because one of the things that I tell a lot of my men <laughs> a lot of my mentees now is that you know what it's okay if this is hard because it kind of has to be if you want to build competitive advantage so so which is only something that I know now I certainly didn't know it at the time but uh, yeah no look it was it was pretty challenging because I mean I was a 21 year old student no business experience didn't have any sort of, you know, family connections. There's no entrepreneurship in my family at all. My parents are social workers. Um, you know, it's, it's it wasn't like I had uh, this kind of entrepreneurial network around me ready to spring into action and support me in my dreams. But, um, yeah, we ended up we ended up borrowing $12,000 off, off James's dad who um, ran a motel in the, in the Burbs out near the airport in Melbourne. And uh, he, he handed over the cheque and said, "Look, this is going to be a really good experience for you both. I'm sure you're going to, I'm sure you're going to learn a lot." 
and which he is, was maybe a goodbye, was he? I, I think so, a little bit, but um, <laughs> probably in the end he should have gone for equity. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, so really, it was for me. It was. I mean, I didn't have. Any, I was studying a business degree, but it doesn't really teach you how to start a business. And so it was just kind of putting one foot in front of the other, going, okay, right. Well, if we need, if we want to set up a beauty website, well, we're going to need a website, and we're going to need some products. And so it was just about solving kind of one problem after another to um, to get to where the next point was. So certainly a lot of slog around just not having any capital really. Um, I mean, the business was run on the, you know, on purely cash flow, like that first $12,000, that was kind of it for the first 14 years. Uh, so, so the business model had to work, had to be kind of profitable from the get-go. Um, was that its own blessing? In, you know, I mean, looking, I'm sure at the time it was tough and if you had another $100,000, I'm sure you could have done a lot more. Was there, was there some discipline, some value in that? Or if you had, again, you'd actually would have a hundred grand and say, you know what, I could speed this thing up. How do you, for those who were kind of starting these businesses with these sort of cash and saying, well, gee, I could do a lot more if I had a lot more. How do you reflect on having that limited amount of money and really needing to make it work? I think it kind of worked for the time that, that I started because it was really 10 years too early. Uh, You know, the beauty industry was not ready for it. Australian customers were not ready for it. None of the retailers, you know, the incumbent big retailers in Australia were pushing online at all, Uh, you know, so... Even download speeds, right? I mean, I can't imagine... People want to know what some of the products were, but if you had to look at the product and then click through and click back... Literally dial up. Yeah, it took ages. It was very slow. So so the fact that I didn't have any money kind of worked because it meant that I had no choice but to keep the cost base so low, like literally out of my garage for years. Um, And so I guess if I had had a lot of money at the start, I might have sort of set things up to be bigger than it it was possible to be. So I guess it kind of worked out in the end. Um, But I did eat a lot of those little packet me goreng noodles for (laughs) for a lot of years. I would say just makes for a good. It makes for a good entrepreneur story. Now looking back, come on, that, that's a great first couple of chapters of the sure, book, right? Sure, yeah, no, it is. It's a depressing couple <laughs> of chapters. I have to say, um, but yeah, it was. I think one of the biggest. Uh, it looked two really big challenges in the early days, and one of those was that the beauty industry was just not really interested in in getting involved in e-commerce at all. So pretty much all of the brands that I approached to be on this amazing new revolutionary way of shopping for beauty <laughs> didn't want to have a bar of it and just said, look, yeah, no, I don't I don't think A that customers are going to want this and also we don't think it's an appropriate channel for premium cosmetics. And so no thank you very much. Go away. And so it was so that was that was very difficult. There was just there was a wild amount of rejection actually which is which is a fairly extreme way to toughen your skin up but um, I don't know if I could really recommend it and <laughs> and then the second thing was that I just I didn't have any marketing funds to drive customers to the website um, and not that there were a lot of kind of digital marketing channels back then anyway but but you know really just had to rely kind of on word of mouth, which is, I suppose, where part of Adore's commitment to the customer experience came from. Because all I had as a marketing tool right, right. was the hope of that <laughs> word of mouth. don't come back and mouth. tell their friends. Correct. Yeah, that, that was right. literally it. And so, and so that's kind of where our, our little trademark of putting a chocolate <laughs> in the box uh, came from. Um, in the early days, most of my customers were Americans, actually, because they were much more into online shopping and the dollar was at 52 cents at that point. And um, we had some interesting uh, Australian 
brands that they hadn't tried before. So, um, yeah, we used to put, it was originally furry friends. You remember furry friends yeah, with I the little, the little animals on? Yeah, then, yeah, the um, furry they, friends, absolutely. Yeah, but then they, they were a bit too melty and so then we, we switched to Tim Tams <laughs> and uh, it's kind of been that ever since. I reckon that's probably a that's probably a master stroke in itself. As much as I love a furry friend, the Americans go nuts for Tim Tams. That's a that was a good that was a good transition. Yeah, I yeah. You've done no, the right well, thing it's, doing that. it's worked. Yes, it's it's yeah. <laughs> you, you talk about all those rejections and toughening yourself up, and I guess you know nature nurtures always these things. I, I, you know, I'm not sure this is just you anyway, and whatever you were doing, you would have been that person. We just so enamored with the dream and the promise of the idea and so convicted that you just kept going. How, how, do, you, how do you get through that? Because I can imagine, I don't, know, I don't know if I would be able to, I don't know how many rejections over how many years, but at some point it's like, man, I believe this thing so much, but everyone else hates it. And I just, okay, maybe maybe this is the wrong thing. How do you, how do you have that just iron will or tenacity or resilience to kind of go, you know what? Yeah, they're all saying no, but they're going to get this eventually. I feel so good about this. I'm going to keep going and not be discouraged. How does that How does take, that work? I don't know, to be honest. I am obviously, I mean, clearly very stubborn. I think, you know, tenacious is a nice way to <laughs> put helps. it. Stubborn is the <laughs> like other it. side. But uh, look, I, I really was so convinced um, that that customers would want this. And I guess the thing that I had that kept me going was that customers were telling me, like the few that I had were telling me they did want this. And, I, you know, so that would kind of be just enough little little nuggets of hope to hang on to was <laughs> that eventually everybody is going to get this because the customers that I have are going, this is the best thing ever. Please get all of these other brands that I like to buy because then I'm never going to have to go into a department store again. And so it was a very... Um, that was a very consistent theme among, you know, the few customers that I did have. And so I think that kept me going. It's a remarkable, even as you as you were telling the story of working the cosmetics counter and, and being jumped on or, or people saying they've been jumped on by people like you in the cosmetics counter in those departments, I can remember walking through those stores and if you're walking through as a single bloke, you, you're pretty much okay, at least back in the day. But I remember walking through with female friends and having, I, I vividly, I hadn't thought about this in years. I don't go to department stores anymore. Maybe it doesn't happen anymore. But that exact experience is exactly right. There was that sense of kind of, you know, these, these shop staff hovering, waiting for you to go past, trying right. to make eye contact, almost like the, the koala, you know, donations in the middle of the CBDs, you know, trying mm. to block your way. Say, hey, try this, try this. On the, by the same token, I, I'm, I'm really struck by the idea of you saying there's got to be a better way to have a customer experience. But then going to, and, and by the way, it's online. So, you know, the whole idea of the cosmetics counter was, hey, try this on, let me, let me show you this thing, try it on your skin. And again, excuse me, I'm not a cosmetics consumer, but, you know, from, from the outside looking in, correct me where I'm wrong, just the idea of like, you know, you want to have the experience. A, it feels good to be pampered a little bit. You get to try it on, you see what it looks like, feels like, how it reacts with your skin, how it makes you look and feel. As much as the experience was kind of like icky and get away from me unless I actually want it, on the other hand, moving online, that's a whole different customer experience where you don't get any of that stuff. And I I don't know, Kat, I'd like to think I would have been someone who said to you, this is a wonderful, you should really go for it. But I have half a feeling I might have been one of those people, horrible people I'm sure at the time who said, customer said experience, beauty, yeah. <laughs> in person, see, touch, feel, man, online is not the, the channel for beauty, surely. And yet clearly it is because you've done spectacularly well what was your? How were you so convicted at the time that this was going to work without those elements? Given that you're saying customer experience is what it's all about, I would have said so. That means you know physical in pre, in person that stuff. And you're like, no, no, no. Customer experience is different, and and people will love it. Look, I think one of the things that I really observed is that 
Yes, there was the experience, you know, in department stores, for example, yes, there was the experience of someone to stand there and and tell you what to buy. But the whole approach of it was very much designed to limit the amount of information that you were allowed to have. Yeah, right, right, um, right. You know, about the product that you were looking at or even about anything else on the floor. There was no way of walking into that environment with a concern and having someone really properly solve it. So you can't walk into a department store. I mean, you still can't walk into a department store and say, I have really dry skin. What is the best thing here for really dry skin? Who's going to do that? There's not even anyone there that knows the whole floor. Um, So it's very much designed around controlling what the customer is allowed to have access to. And so the customer is treated like a patient or like a student and they have to kind of ask permission to be able to access the product. Um, They're discouraged from mixing this and that from different brands, even though just purely by logic, there's no one brand that's going to be perfect for you in every single category for everybody. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. So, um, so I think what I saw was the access to information was a really fundamental part of actually making the customer feel empowered and like that they could make smart decisions. And I think it's actually still really hard to do that in an in-store environment because you're always limited to the knowledge of the sales assistant that's happened to be serving you. I mean, if you think about what we have that we can offer the customer at a door is 21 years of, you know, so many data points from all of the different customers that that we've served and and across, you know, a massive, like over 12,000 different products. And you're not just limited to our knowledge, you have the knowledge of all of the customers that have come before you in terms of, you know, the reviews. And um, I mean, we're, you know, we're able to now build, you know, build an AI algorithm out of out of all of that customer information to to sort of say, yes, we really want to point you in the right direction for you, not for whatever my sales budgets are for today or or you know whatever I've got excess stock of and feel like I need to push to you. So um so it's fundamentally the way that the way that we approached it from the start. And and I actually always believe that online was the best way to do that for the most number of people. It makes perfect sense. I, I, I'm, again, I'm thinking back to those department store days. And again, as you say, they're probably still the same thing, but I, I'm, I, I'll speculate now, but part of, the, part of the kind of concern of those brands you were approaching was if you've got your shop assistant in Amira or DJs or somewhere else and they work for you, they've got your uniform on, they're pushing your products, to, to, for some, particularly the larger ones, that's a competitive advantage. They may have seen it at, that way back then. Maybe they still do. You're kind of saying, hey, let the customer decide. Let's just stock your product. We want them to have lots of information. We want them to choose if it's right for them. But, you, you know, they, they've kind of got – it's almost it's – almost, yeah, because I'm a bloke and I apologise, but it's almost like a car dealership, right, where you go to the Holden dealer – well, not Holden anymore. You go to the Ford dealership and you say, you know, I like a car. And they say, well, here's this, here's this great, you know, little hatchback for you because you want a small car. They're not going to say, well, actually, the Volkswagen Golf's over there and the, uh, you know, Suzuki right. whatever's over there because exactly. they're, they're selling their own thing. And while it might be fine and, and good and whatever, and, and the manufacturers love it that way because they want their salesperson selling their thing. Correct. No one's saying, yep. hey, this is the right car for you. And I suppose, again, I apologise for the blokey analogy, but it just it instantly makes sense that that idea of, hey, this is not about the company. I mean, it's, you, know, you want great products and you've got great products, I'm sure, from great brands, but it's not about the brand pushing their thing because they want to sell it. It's about as a retailer, as a, I guess, a partner for the consumer and the shopper, being able to say, 
here's a range of choices you can make based on what we know, what you Correct. can find out, what others are saying. Correct, yeah. I think that whole, the idea of customer centricity and customer empowerment is, you know, and and the way that the internet has enabled that has been um, really kind of the industrial revolution of, of retail because not only are we going to say, hey, we're going to give customers all the information and, and let them make their choice, but also we're going to let them tell each other what they think is good. <laughs> That's right. You know? <laughs> yeah. And so as a, as a brand uh, nowadays or a retailer nowadays, your job is not about controlling the access to information. Your job is about creating an incredible product, giving all the people all of the information they need to make the right decision and then getting out of the way, which is which is a very different way of doing business and has been really quite disruptive, I think, in, in the beauty industry particularly. It's incredible. I, I'm, I'm motivated to... So I think about that. I think about lots of industries. The finance industry is the same, by the way, when you start to break down some of those barriers and it goes from, hey, I've made something, I'm going to convince you to buy it, through I'm going to make something great so you'll want to buy it. That, that makes a whole lot more sense. Correct, yes. By the same token, I'm curious as to the interplay... I'll say beauty, skincare, cosmetics, and apologies if I'm getting the categories wrong here, but brand is really important for a lot of people. You know, the the, the, the brand value there as well as the product delivery. And I'm curious at all how you're finding that. You know, there are some people who are completely utilitarian, just give me the thing that makes me look best. There are others who say, no, I, I like that brand. I want to feel like I'm a premium brand consumer or, for, you know, we, we all make different Cars are exactly the same, as I said. Just curious how that's actually playing out for you guys now. If we have any insights into that, maybe maybe you don't. It's you know harder to know. But given those changes, that it does come down to hopefully fundamentally, does the product deliver? And then of those that do, which do I want? Has it changed the the consumer's relationship with brands? Is it as strong as it used to be, or is it door now the brand they have an, an affinity affinity with rather than the cosmetics themselves? I think I think increasingly, increasingly they do have an affinity with. Adore and and we've been really developing our brand voice, um, not just as you know a retail outlet, but really as you know an authority and, a, and an influencer ourselves in the space. So particularly with the way that we've invested in our content channels. Um, so we have our Beauty IQ blog. We have three different podcasts. So we have three of the top six beauty podcasts in the country. Um, you know, we have a hugely popular YouTube channel, TikTok, all of those things. And and our approach is very much to be authentic and real and have a sense of humour. And you know, we understand that you are buying these products for you know at least in part for the way that they make you feel. And so we so we do get it. And I think, I think for us, it is really about our, our approach to beauty is very democratic. So, for instance, we're not ever going to say to you, buy this serum and not that one because this one is more effective and that one's just nice packaging and it smells nice. Like, sometimes what you want is nice packaging and for it yeah, to smell no, yeah, nice. Exactly, yeah. And that it's is perfectly right? okay. Yep. Um, so so our, our, our sort of tagline, I guess, for our, for our first big above the line campaign was whatever makes you, you. Like what, <laughs> whatever, whatever way that you want to engage with the beauty category, we're really here to support that. We want to give you all the facts that you need. Um, we want to help through our content to demonstrate to you what the experience of using this product is going to be like. And so that's certainly a big thing we talk about. We don't just talk about, you know, in a clinical way, what is the result? Because some, some people want that, but some if you're talking about certain categories like um, body wash, for instance, 
there's a reason that you would spend $45 on a premium body wash instead of $5 one that is equally going to clean your body. Um, you know, there's there's a difference in the way that they make you feel. And so we, we try and we try and showcase that through our content to really explain, you know, why why would you want to buy this one, mm, mm. or why or why might you not? Mm, um, mm. And again, either's perfectly okay. Is that the customer it's, decide, it's, right? Yeah, yeah. Nice. Absolutely, absolutely. And what we find too is that is that some customers, for instance, really want to splurge on super high end skincare but they don't really care very much about the mascara that they use. Like, so long as it does a good job and it doesn't... You know, it's it's everybody has different priorities. Um, some people want to spend all their money on makeup and they just want skincare that kind of does the basics. And, again, that's also perfectly fine. We just, we just want to give people all the information and, and sort of help to guide them. If you want this, then this. If you want that, right, then right, that one right. over there. Yeah. And it's a pretty good place to be. And, you know, I'm sure it's absolutely intrinsically part of your DNA as a, as a business, but it's also a really great customer proposition when you get to say, we're not going to try and push you anywhere. We're just here for you. We want to be your trusted partner in whatever way you want to use us. We will try and deliver you that value rather Correct. than being someone who says, well, you have to do this, you have to use that, or we are only about premium skincare or only about cheap body wash or whichever whichever options of those you want to choose. Correct. You don't, you don't, you don't, you're there just as the, as the partner to the customer rather than pushing a particular way they need to be to use your, your, your website. That's exactly it. I mean, we'll regularly do kind of budget versus bougie articles about, you know, <laughs> here's, here's, a, here's a, you know, budget-friendly option. Here's the one if you want to go all out. Um, either's good, whatever floats your boat. Uh, but, I mean, that goes all the way through to even to, uh, for instance, we have um, really well-trained customer assistance on, like, live chat and phone and email, for, for instance, uh, but none of them are on sales commission. So... They are, they are empowered, you know, their, their main KPI is, was the customer happy after this interaction? And so they are entirely empowered to say, yeah, look, I don't think that's right for you. I wouldn't get that one. I think, you know, this one is 80 bucks cheaper and actually I think this has worked just as well for you and I would rather see you use, you know, XYZ instead because I, I think that's going to work better for you. Um, and that's, that's really how you build trust with your customers is to, to be willing to say, yeah, no, not that one. Kate, I've said for a while that being a disruptor innovator is really, really hard. And you've talked about 20 years of, of hard slog to be an overnight success. And it is. I think that once an innovator disruptor becomes, I'll call it escape velocity, once you achieve escape velocity as a business, you have the world at your feet as a, not only a door, but disruptors in general, because you don't have to, it's the innovator's dilemma stuff. You don't have to keep up with last year's margins or wrecking your pre-existing business models or any of that sort of stuff. So to your point, you know, the, 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 the guy or lady at the skincare counter of brand X doesn't, well, normally doesn't get to say, don't use mine, go over there. The, the, the lady over there's got a better product for you or the, the company themselves, you know, other retailers have their own ways of being in business. Your ability, as you say, to not offer sales commissions, to, to, to rank on happiness, to to grow objectively based on what you, how you want to be is, is a wonder. You know, it's always been an asset, I suppose, but for a long time, it's like, man, I'm trying to be different here. I'm trying to be better. I'm trying to show people a different way and I'm just slogging and slogging away, trying to get you know, critical mass. Once you get there, 
you know, your, your company, plenty of others besides e-commerce and just in any industry. Um, Aussie Broadband's one that comes to mind, a very, very different business to yours, but they've just found a different way uh, culturally of being an MBN reseller, which is about the most commoditized business in the world, but customers love them to death. Um, and again, you know, Telstra can't do that anytime soon. I imagine your offline and online competitors are kind of stuck in their business models and that works for them. And, you know, it's not about you versus them necessarily, although you feel free to do that. Um, but I, it just it just reminds me that there is that real value in being true to yourself, being different. And then I said, you've got to get to that escape philosophy. Once you get there, it goes from a, a you know, a, a challenge to this massive benefit, this, this massive differentiator that you've got that others don't necessarily have. Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, Momentum is everything, but um, you know, as you as you pointed out, you know, it's it's certainly not an overnight journey to get to that. It is a really long commitment, and it's a long time, um, particularly when you're innovating and you're doing things that are new and you are disrupting the way that your entire category works. There is so much resistance to that. Um, you know, it's like walking through a blizzard every day for a really long time. Um, But then eventually, yes, you do get to a point where, you know, as Adore has, for instance, because we have that that deep kind of love relationship with our customers, uh, you know, and you can, when you see that coming through in that sort of, you know, returning customer revenue sedimentary rock that keeps growing in the business every year because once we win a customer over they stay with us and the retention rates are so high and every year they come back and actually spend more than they did the year before and that's when you start to really get those those flywheel effects, which is not to say that we rest on our laurels for no, no, one yeah. minute, to be honest. It's not like we get there and go, oh, sweet, <laughs> that's done. job done, job done, yeah. thanks very Off much, let's all go to lunch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's not really, that's sort of culturally not us either. We're always <laughs> always really pushing and, and striving for whatever the next whatever the next thing is and that's that's what it is to innovate right like it's not it's not something you're ever done with yeah, I'll, I'll get to next steps in a minute. I, I love the sedimentary rock metaphor, by the way. I'm, I, I might, I might steal that with credit. Uh, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll use sure. that. It's a, it's a really great you way. You just of thinking mention about. a dobiti every time you. <laughs> it and we're good. That's right, and I went link to the website. Um, you, you went public as you said a little while ago. Um, and for those business owners listening, um, curious is that journey. I imagine to some degree you kind of felt like you needed to because you had outside investors who wanted uh, the old liquidity event, as they call it in the trade these days. Um, some people go public, hate it. Some people go public, love it. Some big businesses like Visi and others are multi-billion-dollar businesses that have always stayed private. Just curious, just your reflections as go- going from a you know, private business with, with outside investors or maybe maybe that's the three steps from, you know, the $12,000 and blood, sweat and tears through to some equity investors then through to being a public company. How's yeah. that journey been? Pros and cons, anything you wish you'd done differently? Just just curious about that kind of process. Yeah, yeah. Look, I guess, I mean, the, the reason for sort of starting with any of that in terms of, you know, as opposed to just staying a private independent company, which, you know, which you could have done, um, I think... I think the frustrating thing for me always being bootstrapped for such a long time is that, you know, I felt we had created something that was genuinely special and and it's always, it's frustrating not to, you know, for it to not have all of the opportunities that you that you envisage for it. So, you know, imagine you've got this kid that's just like super smart and could get into Harvard or something, but you can't afford to send them. It's just like, oh, it kind of breaks your heart a little bit. And, you know, you want, you wanted to have everything. And, um, and certainly, yeah, certainly I, I really 
you know, still believe in just the huge growth potential of this business. Like even after 21 years, in some ways, I feel like we're just scratching the surface of, of what it can be. Um, but yes, as a, as a private and independent business, unless you, you know, are from the sort of family that has rivers of cash available <laughs> to it, there are always yeah. things that are kind of just off the table and that you can't do. Um, and so that was that was sort of the original decision to bring on a private equity partner. Uh, and and that was, yeah, really, was a really good decision and, and one that we made at the right time. And, and the plan, I guess, that we made with them is where we, where we want to get to is being listed uh, because this company is fantastic and I want to set it up to be able to go on and thrive for another 21 years and, and, and more than that. And so that's, that was kind of the plan that we, we sat down and, and worked out and, and it, it sort of mapped it all out and the things that, things that we would need to kind of have in place and, and work towards to be able to do that. Uh, and then, and then COVID happened and all of a sudden we just got there really quickly <laughs> and we sort of looked at the list and went, oh, yeah. actually, I think, I think we're ready to go. I guess we're going. Uh, yeah, nice. I guess we're going. And mm-hmm. so it was, it's sort of, what was supposed to take us, you know, kind of three years and it <laughs> took us like a year and a half, but, um, yeah. you know, you, you take your, take your opportunities when, when they arise and, uh, yeah, no, look, it's certainly, it's certainly different being listed, obviously, to being a, a private and independent business. And I think I'm glad that we, you know, had had put all of the things in place in terms of having a really absolute top-notch leadership team and, and you know, all of the, the systems and governance processes and all of the things that we'd been working on. I'm glad that we took the time to do all of that and and to you know to get everything in place and and to be ready and I think honestly our you know our values and our culture have set us up well to be able to do that we very much had kind of already had that culture of of transparency and integrity that you really need I think um, on you know on the public markets uh, we were already we were already kind of operating that way so so it is a lot of extra paperwork but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but beyond that it's I don't think the company looks like all that different really from the inside yeah. You talk about we a lot and you talk about the culture and the values and I can see that coming so strongly through from you. And yet last year you stepped down as CEO and appointed Tino O'Shaughnessy to take over in that role. Um, that, that's, that's I, I know, from the outside, maybe from the inside, it's a gutsy call, it's a scary call, it's, a, it's an ambitious call. As you say, you want to set it up for longer-term success. It doesn't rely necessarily on, on you or, uh, you know, for as long as you want to be involved, you will be, I'm sure. But um, I, I, there's been some great decisions by CEOs to say hey I'm not the person for the next thing I might be the I might be the entrepreneur I might be the, the you know the, the the idea I might be the driver I might be all these things but I'm not the best person to be CEO now in the US we've seen that with Starbucks and we've had people had to come back how Charles had to come back to the business having having made maybe a mistake or just simply maybe wanted to take the reins again and redirect the company so it's gone well in some cases gone gone not so well in other cases how did, how did that feel? I, 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 you talk about loving your children equally. You talk about the brands. I, I can't imagine building a business for twenty years and then going, "Okay, now I'm kind of going to hand it over to you and try and not be the CEO anymore." You're, you're obviously you know, involved in innovation and obviously you know the the, the name behind the business to, to a large degree. But that's got to be 
a weird experience, if nothing else. How, how did that go? Um, well, first of all, I actually stepped back from the CEO role in 2018. Oh, my so, apologies. I'm sorry. So, no, that's okay. Um, no, so James and I were, were kind of co-CEOs for, for the first 18 years of the business and then we realised that was kind of making life difficult for everybody because they okay. sort of had to report to both of Two us bosses. and it was yeah. impossible to get decisions made and we just went, oh, no, this is really not working, <laughs> right, slowing right. us down. Right. Uh, and so I, I stepped out of the CEO role and, and James took that on. Oh, and that's, so, sorry, that's right, yes. Um, but, but, yes, in terms of the transition to bringing Tennille into the business, it's probably been the last, the least chaotic thing that's happened in the last 12 months, to be honest. It's, it's actually been really smooth and I, th- I put that down to us really taking the time to find the right person uh, because for Adore, the culture and values is the absolute, you know, key thing that we have, the key asset that we have. And so we knew that this was just such an important decision to make and that under no circumstances could this CEO, regardless of their experience or skills, not be someone to, to take our culture and values on and, and, and into that kind of listed entity. So uh, I think we took, yeah, probably about eight months on that on that search and, and interviewed a lot of people. And I remember uh, interviewing Tennille for the first time with James and we just looked at each other afterwards and went, oh, thank God. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Okay. <laughs> there she is. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, that's great. So, so that's, that's, it's really been, it's really been tremendous. And, and cause I think we, we recognize that, you know, we are, we are builders and ideas people and um, crashing through walls people and all of those sorts of things. And then in terms of the skill set required to lead a company when you've got 200 people, um, neither of us was the best person to really go on and do it. I mean, we, I'm sure we could have done it, but it wouldn't have been the best thing for the company or us personally. Like it would have, it would have just not really been quite the right fit. And was that hard uh, at all? Was that, was that not, I, I, you know, I'm just imagining, no. even if you think the right person's the right person, letting go for me would be like, I'm now turning left instead of right at this point. Someone else is now the one who's making the calls. I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm impressed that you've been able to sort of say, you know, we trust and we like this person so much. Obviously, you guys are still involved and still, you know, can, can, can pull the reins if, if, if everything went to went pear-shaped. But um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really impressed. Yeah, no, look, it, like I said, it just, it, it always just felt right. And I mean, obviously we managed the transition really carefully. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, just chuck someone in the deep end, just throw on the keys <laughs> and walk those away. <laughs> no, exactly. So, yeah. uh, so that was something that, you know, we very definitely, you know, I mean, it was, it was quite an in-depth transition for, you know, I mean, really for the first 12 months to, to make sure that, you know, that she had everything that we need and that we were, supporting her and, and, you know, trying to hand over as much of our knowledge as, as we could. Um, and, and we, I mean, the exec team that we have in the business, like the rest of the leadership team, lots of those, lots of them have been in the business for a long time too. So, so I guess it's, it's not like you're sort of putting an, in an all new management team and, and nobody knows how anything works. It's It definitely wasn't like that. Um, so, yeah, I think from everybody's perspective, it's been really quite smooth. That's pretty good. Mate, think about, think about the door's future then, I guess, is, as we as we do move forward from here. Uh, you said you feel like you're just kind of getting going. There's so much more to be done. Uh, Adore's kind of gone from that disruptor innovator through to now the, 
you don't necessarily the, the biggest in the room, but but certainly you become the the business that others are now trying to beat, rather than mm. rather yeah. So it's, it's I know a we're the incumbent, <laughs> right? Which is which, which must be lovely, but also you go from being the hunter to the hunter, which has its own challenges, or maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's just you just keep doing your own thing. But how do you, how does it all keep differentiating itself going forward? Keep improving, you know, make sure you remain the the key online beauty retailer that you are today. Uh, I'm not asking you to weigh obviously plans and strategies that you you know rather keep to yourselves, but you know th- just think about that journey moving forward. Is it is it more of the same, just focusing on the same things? Is it, is it being different because of size? How do you how do you stay number one in that market? I think it's I think it's just with that constant kind of long range thinking. So one of the things that we've just sort of never really done is sat around and looked at our competitors and gone, oh, okay, we'll, we'll try and do that. And we see, and then that's as you say, that's the funny thing now is that we see our competitors copying the things that we do only yeah, like yeah. a year later and it's like, oh, okay, right, well, you know, <laughs> have fun with that. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, I guess we, we're always trying to think, you know, five to ten years out, what does the customer want from this category? Where where are we going to need to be for her and him um, in ten years' time? What are the things that, that we think make sense? What are the things that we think might change? How can we... How can we be part of that? And for us, really, really owning um, the discovery piece is really super important. So that's that's been a lot of our our investment in you know in in content and and building up our platform so that it's also you know from a technology standpoint enabled to really integrate content and and commerce in a way that um, in the way that is both enjoyable and educational uh, for for our customers. Um, so I think it's it's again it's the customer centricity that you kind of come back to every time, but also just trying not to be reactive uh, and really thinking thinking further out and being willing, I guess, to disrupt yourself too. Mm-hmm. That's got that's got to be tough. I'm always impressed with the the Amazon story. I own shares for the record, just for adolescents. Um, Jeff Bezos sent the Kindle team across the country and said, "Go and do Kindle over there because if you try and do it here, people will tell you why you can't destroy our book business. We've got a physical book business and Kindle will compete with that. So go over the other side of the East Coast of America, develop that business yeah. and then you know, build it build it independently and whichever one wins, wins because we'll just go where the customer goes. That's um, it. So many businesses struggle to disrupt themselves because it becomes that calcified, this is how we do things around here. This is how we do to, things, yeah. yeah. And the, yeah. Only time, the only time I've ever seen... You know, you, you see, you see big companies make really terrible decisions because they're making them based on whatever their competitors are doing and not what their customers want, uh, and that's always when things go bad. That's good advice, mate. I wonder if we can come to, to you personally for a second. You're a successful, obviously, co-founder, director, CEO. Um, you are though still in the significant minority as a female in all of those roles, unfortunately. Um, some some desperately don't want to be talked about as a female CEO or a female director or a female founder because it's like, no, I'm just a founder, I'm just a CEO, don't 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 make my gender a thing. On the other hand, the massive disparity, the massive inequity between men and women when it comes to holders of those roles, some women are like, you know what, no, talk about this because this is important, we need to do this. Um, mm. So I guess firstly, I'll, I'll get your thoughts on that question because that might determine my next sure. question. Um, just, yeah, female founders, like the old mumpreneur, some people say, well, don't call me that because I'm not a, I'm uh, not a mum, but equally- Mumpreneur, I can't, I can't right? deal with because uh, if we're not going to say dadpreneur, then exactly. I'm, not, I'm not doing it. Um, no, that's so right. I definitely, I, that's probably not one that I identify with. But I mean, calling out, calling out gender inequality, I think, is something that's actually really super important. Um, I think the thing that that disappoints me is that it is left to women to call it out and then left to us to do that work. 
Um, I remember I was on a was on a panel um, in between lockdowns when we actually <laughs> did get to go to like a physical there event a one time, and I was on a panel with two other male entrepreneurs, and uh, someone in the audience asked a question about um, you know diversity and inclusion, and they and they turn around and looked at me, and I'm like, yeah, because <laughs> let's get the women to do the work on this. What I want to see is you white guys telling yeah, us what you're yeah. going to do about it. You're yeah. the one that's got to give up a bit of space for us. So, yeah, totally. Uh, so I, 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 from my perspective, it's certainly something that, you know, that I want to talk about because I want to change it uh, and I certainly want to make it something that, you know, that, that people have to think about and, and can't, just, um, can't just gloss over. And I think there's, there's certainly a really long way to go and, and that was my experience during the IPO is that, is that for a lot of the fund managers we were talking to, I mean, for starters, I would say 90% of them were men. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and further to that, for a lot of them, we were the first, like, all-women exec team that had ever presented to them. Like, it had just kind of not really happened. And and that's just wild to me. Um, I mean, the whole idea that out of, what was it, like 2,500 companies on the ASX, six of them have a majority women board. Like, <laughs> so... Yeah, they tend, oh, I mean, those, those ones tend to be majority women categories too, which is even worse in, a, in the sense that they, they almost self-select more than the others would, which makes the rest of them look even worse because they've made worse. no effort yeah. whatsoever to make it. So, so I'm, <laughs> given, given you just said that you're a panel and people looked at you and said, what do we think we should do about it? I'm about to ask you exactly that same question, Kate. So you can you can throw something virtually at me as I do that, but um, I, I will ask you because it, it is important and you do care about it. Uh, I will try and make sure I ask male CEOs though. I'll try, and, I'll try and make myself a note to make sure I do that. I think that is the most important yeah. thing like don't just ask yeah, yeah, the yeah. women about it because that's it's it's really the only way that we're going to change it is because fundamentally part of the problem is that most of the decision making decision makers are white men and so we need to start asking them well, what, what are you going to do about so, it so let me ask you a different question differently then because you've had the experience of being in that role and in the minority. So rather, rather, than, rather than what, obviously what I'm asking you, you should do about it, you've done everything you can do, which is start a company <laughs> and, and be successful. Um, if, the, if there was some advice you would give to those who are saying, I know we need to do something, but I'm not sure what, given your, your specific experience being female in this role, we can ask men what they could and should do about it from their own perspectives. But do you have any insights you would share with people who are saying, we need to do something, but I don't know what. Is it is it quotas? Is it is it programs? Is it mentoring? Is it is it just literally taking the blinders off? Yeah. Look, I I, I personally am a, am a fan of of quotas or targets or whatever you want to call them. Um, I think what gets measured gets managed, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and you know, and you can look at that. You know, you can look at that in politics. One side put quotas in and has fifty percent women. The other side didn't and doesn't, and. Nobody wants, no woman wants to sit there going, oh, well, you know, I just got picked because cause I'm the token. But um, given that, you know, white men have been getting picked that way for all of eternity, <laughs> yeah, right. kind of okay with it. And yep. uh, yeah, I think, I, so, so I, am, I am supportive of that because I think, what, you know, sometimes you have to force the change to, to make people go, oh, okay, right. Well, if I need to, if I want to hire women, then I'm going to need to like, go looking for some, which means moving outside of my networks, which means looking to build up a pipeline, looking to not just, you know, 
run sort of cupcake morning teas to promote women, but actually, you know, really <laughs> pink, pink support and cake. promote them in their careers. Yeah, yeah. Um, give exactly. them the opportunities, make things easier for people who have family responsibilities, which, by the way, ought to be men too. Absolutely. Um, yeah, for so, sure. So, look, yeah, I, I think... If you force the change, then all of the other things kind of follow on from that because they have to. Yeah. Which creates that seismic shift, right? When you start to have 50% women on boards or in executive teams, right. then it changes the dynamic, which, which then actually change. creates the, the change you're trying to, you're trying Correct. to foster the naturally. Correct. actually naturally does changes. come. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. I'm, I'm always fascinated by people who say, no, it shouldn't be quite, it should be based on merit. And you look around and say, are you really telling me that well, there's only 90 th- yeah. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> only 6% of women are, are actually, you know, have significant, sufficient merit to, are they only 6% of women it. who are capable enough, smart enough? And I'm sure enough, some people believe enough. that, right? But, yeah, it's um, crazy. But, but let's, yeah, let's not go yep. there. I agree, I agree. Mate, uh, last question before I get to our regular questions. Uh, what are you passionate about these days? You've obviously, I, I, I got it wrong, you stepped down from the CEO role three years ago and then and then obviously as things change, the door is still obviously something you're passionate about. We heard that right through this interview and thank you for spending the time. Um, but but what, what are you what, what are you passionate about? What, what things get you out of bed in the morning? Look, I, I mean, I, I, have, um, I have a family, so I have a fairly young family. Uh, my kids are 10 and 5 and... Um, they're pretty fantastic. So I, you know, obviously love spending time with them and try and make sure that, you know, it's kind of a big thing at Adore that we, you know, yes, it's a high performance culture, but we also want people to see their families. And that's really, that's really important. Um, I am really passionate uh, and have been in a fortunate position over the last couple of years to be doing a lot of um, mentoring and investing in other founders. So I get really great joy uh, in working with nice people doing interesting things and have uh, so I'm a mentor with the Startmate Accelerator um, so I've worked with worked with a couple of businesses there that I've gone on to invest in so that's heaps normal the alcohol free okay. beer and uh, Milk Drop which is uh, reinventing the breast pump um, which is which has been really fantastic a uh, little bit more uh, sort of angel investing here and there so I invested uh, you know, I mean I love purpose-led consumer businesses. So who gives a crap? I invested in their first uh, funding round, which was just recently. But um, yeah, I just, I really love, um, particularly particularly women founders, for, you know, from a mentoring perspective, um, being able to give them the benefit of all of the mistakes I've made in the last <laughs> 21 years and, and all of the things that, you know, that I know to be true from my experience and trying to help them succeed. Uh, I really didn't have a lot of help in the early years of the business and I think that made a lot of it harder than perhaps it needed to be. And uh, from my perspective, you know, if you reach a certain point on the ladder of success, then it is, um, you know, your, your duty and your great privilege to turn around and try and help a bunch more, a bunch more people up after you. I love that. That's great. Okay, let's, let's finish with our, our regular four questions, just, just simple ones, uh, but, but we find our listeners quite like them. Uh, first of all, what are you reading and watching at the moment? You said you've got a young family and you're busy at work, so I'm not sure how much reading or watching you do, but is there anything you're streaming, anything you're listening to, an audio book, anything you're reading you'd, you'd like to recommend or suggest we check out? Um, I'm an absolutely huge Ted Lasso fan. I have not um, watched that yet. I'm oh overdue. Oh, my goodness. You are so in for a treat. It is the most delightful piece of perfect television I've seen in just forever. It is. And, and the reason I love it, or part of it, is, is that, um, 
you know, Ted as a leader really represents kind of the adore style and, and culture. You know, it's, it's, it's delightful. Um, so, yes, highly recommend that. I've also been reading a fabulous book, which I may get the title of it wrong, but it's called uh, Invisible Women. And so it's about how, the, how data and the way that data is collected and recorded has sort of systematically excluded women from, you know, kind of everything and, and, you know, and history and, um, you know, and, and all kinds of things over, over many, many years. So that's, that's really super fascinating. Carolyn Criado Perez, I think, is the author. Is that right? That's Invisible the one. Women yep. Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Even even the remarkable uh, drug trials that have been almost exclusively done on men, as if oh. men and women's bodies are the same, is it's bizarre to me. Right. I mean, go. there's the classic story of the the uh, crash test dummy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Why yep. would you bother trusting on women? That's, yeah, exactly. It's crazy. Correct. All yep. right. Uh, next one. What, this can be business related, can be social, can be anything you want. What trends are you watching? What do you kind of got your eye on and you're kind of going, that's interesting. I'm seeing how that's moving there. Is it is it something in, in, in your work life, in your personal life, just in society in general, you're kind of watching a trend and seeing something coming or developing? Yeah. Um, look, I mean, I think, I think the increasing, um, you know, prevalence of women getting more into, you know, into entrepreneurship or at least kind of becoming a little bit more visible is something that I think that is just so exciting. Uh, and there's some really incredible kind of breakthrough um, businesses happening in, you know, in, in the health and, and wellness space in um, you know, purpose-led consumer businesses. Actually, I think the whole, the whole trend of, of, purpose-led and, and sustainability in terms of um, consumer brands, I think, is is really fascinating in the way of the future. Nice. My next question is about advice you would give someone, and I'm not sure. So I know you say advice you would give someone interested in a job in your industry, but I'm also, given you mentioned your mentees and your journey so far, I, I'm almost inclined to ask you what advice would you give someone who is starting out as an entrepreneur, maybe even a female entrepreneur. If we've got women listening who are like, I'm going to do this, I've just started doing this, I'm about to do this. I know you, you, you mentor and you do other things, but is there any particular advice you'd say, here's, here's what you need to know, here's the thing that I wish I was told, anything that kind of comes yeah. to mind there? Um. I think, I think first of all, you've got to start with the customer in terms of in terms of the why. You know, what problem are you trying to solve for them? Who are they, and what is what is the problem that you're trying to solve? And is it something that you care deeply enough about to crawl through barbed wire and <laughs> you know <laughs> break down yeah, walls right. for? Because yeah. it is going to be hard, and it has to be uh, if you're going to create competitive advantage. I love that. My last question, I'm an optimist by nature, Kate, so my, my last question to all, I guess, is what is something you are optimistic about? I am, I am actually optimistic about the future on the climate front in particular, which I know sounds weird, but um, I've, you know, been um, doing some work with uh, with organisations like uh, Beyond Zero Emissions who are just doing some incredible lobbying work around uh, putting together, you know, really the the jobs and and business case for Australia getting to net zero. And I think, I think it is inevitable, actually, I think for all of the, for for all of the fact that it seems like, um, like a bit of a mess, I really do, I really do think we'll get there. And I think particularly if you look at uh, the advocacy of, you know, younger sort of, you know, your Gen Zs and, and younger, your Greta Thunbergs. It's just how can you not have faith in that? 
I love that. That is a wonderful way to finish. I desperately hope you're right, Kate, and you've uh, you've given me reason to believe. So I really appreciate that. Kate Morris from Adore Beauty, thank you very much for spending a little bit of time on The Good Oil. If you want to follow Kate, you can follow her on Twitter at Morris underscore Kate or on Instagram. I'm still getting used to that one at Kate Adore Beauty. Do you have a personal TikTok account, Kate, or are you uh, using just the Adore Beauty TikTok account these days? I I have not gone as far as doing any (laughs) creation on the TikTok. I only lurk. (laughs) Very good. Yeah, it's all, all foreign to me still, but I'm sure I'll get there one. Kate, thank you again for joining us on The Good Oil. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips. It's produced excellently by Beth Gibson and audio imaged brilliantly by Link Kelly. Listener.